right. Well, Robin Black, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're obviously, you know, huge fans, right? So we're going to start with that. And, um, you know, I think that one of the things that we can say about this podcast is, you know, that, you know the Art Fight podcast that we do is, you know, I, w- I would say that it's, it's fair to say that we're pretty inspired by what you're doing and that you should consider what we're doing sort of um, an offshoot or something that is because of or a consequence of uh, your uh, efforts over the years. Well, man, honestly, like that is such a fucking cool thing to say to somebody. And, and I can tell by your voice and by the work that you guys do that you mean it. And so I'm like insanely grateful for what you're telling me and, and for that. Um, and when I think about it, like over time, it's pretty easy to kind of, you know, especially if you're fortunate enough to be doing the kind of things that you love doing, which, is, which I am, is sometimes it's easy to kind of lose track of what your purpose is. Like, what is your why? Why are you doing this? And because you'll get caught up in, you know, the speed at which you do things or you'll assign yourself short-term goals that you're trying to do. Uh, but my why is that I honestly want to positively influence martial arts. And I know that's a huge, huge thing to try to assign yourself. It's a huge goal, but it's general enough that I think if you achieve it on a big scale, like people start podcasts and carry on the same philosophy and add to it like you guys are doing, then that's massive. But you can also achieve a goal like that in very tiny ways. Like just make one person really like a thing and think about something a tiny bit differently and you've achieved that goal. So it's my very general why, yeah. my very general purpose. And I'm really, really grateful that you guys like, you know, that you said that and that that's so, man. That means a lot to me. Well, yeah. And so, you know, if I think about why you know, I mean, obviously Joe and I started this podcast together because, you know, we're, we're actually just sort of artists and musicians and, and resident kind of weirdos in Nashville. And we would always end up at these art gallery, uh, sort of, uh, hangs or whatever. We were always wanting to like sort of lean off to the side and be like, did you see the fights last night? And did you notice this? And did you notice that? And how it correlates to a lot of the creativity and other things that were sort of in and around. Um, and it sort of seemed like a logical place to start correlating creativity and the, and the arts with the martial arts and sort of, uh, sort of backwards sort of um, um, combining th- those things. And so I think that people that don't know anything about martial arts are still able to sort of appreciate where we're coming from. And I think that it, that's even the same for what, what you do. And I guess what I can say is that, you know, what I think you're doing that is so important is if you look at the problems that we have in the world today, I think so many of them are about um, there's a very distinct lack of intellectual curiosity in the culture. And I think that um, being humble and being curious about anything is a really powerful state of mind and state of being. And so anybody that's practicing that, whether within the martial arts idiom or not, I think is doing something really important. I, I lost a, a little bit of the last what you said, but I but I followed because uh, I'm walking in Toronto. But I followed you right up to that point. You know, I don't think it's anybody's fault that we live in a very very reactionary, very cut sides, very black or white, on or off, one or zero kind of culture. I don't think that's the individual's fault. I think that's the culture's fault. I think that's media's fault. I think that's news's fault. Um, But I think a natural reaction to it is long, deeper conversations. A natural reaction is is examining things from curiosity and trying not to, trying not to act like you know everything and, and, and trying to find answers instead of argue sides. And so, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel like I know that what I'm doing and what you guys are doing and what many other people are doing, I know that it's not special in, in many ways. It's a natural reaction to a world in which we live in where people choose a side and argue it to the death. A natural reaction to that is let's sit down, assume we know nothing and dig, 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 dig until we actually find something of value. I, I see people in all walks of life, they'll see an expert, somebody who's dedicated their life to studying something. So let's say, let's say Dan Hardy, 
or let's say a scientist, <laughs> that person will say something, you know, that person will say something, and then people on Twitter, their automatic reaction will be like, well, scientists, or well, Dan Hardy, <laughs> I disagree. And then they'll throw out some point from a point of which they have almost zero expertise, and it's not their fault. They're, they've been taught to do that. And then the next reaction would be like, well, my opinion is just as important as the brain surgeon or Dan Hardy's. And no, it isn't. The fact that you have a right to one is, but the fact that the, the opinion of an uneducated individual about brain surgery is not as valid as a brain surgeon's. And we've, we have tricked ourselves into thinking that it is your job to argue something and it is your job to disagree and it's your job to fight it. We've been trained to do that. And there's a whole world of people doing the opposite. And you guys are part of that group, and so am I. And, and we're not better. We're not smarter. This, is not, this isn't some revolutionary thing. This is a natural reaction to a pendulum swinging way too far that people with almost no education on any topic will argue that topic to the death. Yeah. We're, are, we're, having a natu- we're a natural reaction to that. Yeah, and so, you know, one of the things I'm also curious about and that Joe and I are, I think, both curious about is, you know, knowing that you come from, uh, you know, you did a lot of uh, music and a lot of other sort of creative yep. um, sort of paths. And I guess I'm just curious how you've sort of um, had those experiences sort of feed into to the other. Um, they definitely do in ways I would never would have thought. Like, in just very practical ways, like when I... You know, today, the, some of the things I do today, they'll be different in two years and two months and five years. But right now, some of the things I really like to do is tell a story by breaking down a piece of combat and take a video, cut it up into pieces, draw some stuff on it, put my voice on it, storytell it, and try to look for meaning in it. And that pr- very process combines the study of martial arts, the study of, of editing, the study of making videos, things I did when I played in a band. You know, I wrote songs, I made music videos, I directed music videos, I edited things like, you know, I crafted little pieces of art. I, it never occurred to me until recently that breaking, quote, breaking down or analyzing fights ties in all of those skills that I did. So in a very practical way, that's there. When I went to fight, people would say, how did singing in a rock band help you as a fighter? And I'd say, well, it didn't. But in truth, it did, because <laughs> when I would go out in front of a large crowd of people, that the meaning of a large crowd of people for me was always awesome. There's a lot of people here. You know what I mean? That was a good thing. When I walked out and the room was full, that was a good thing. So when I went to fight and I remember walking out and looking at it, instead of going, oh, my God, there's all these people here. I was like, awesome. It's a full crowd because a full crowd was a good thing for me when I performed. I always thought we were always thrilled if it was full. So there were things like that, natural things like that. But truthfully, like at the root of what we do, what, what I look at and what I do for a living and for a hobby and for love is I study martial arts and martial arts is art. Like it's been packaged as sports, you know, the ultimate fighting championship, UFC one, even, uh, you know, Valley Tudo, uh, it was sport in Pancrase and, and boys and in Japan, they presented you know, modern martial arts combat, it was performance. But ultimately, it's art. It doesn't matter, you know, like for 25 years, we, we presented it as a sport, but for since humans existed, physical expression for combat was an expression of individuality and self and artistic expression. So the 25 years it's been presented as sport is, is an aberration. It's a blip. It isn't sport. It isn't, there's no such thing as sport. We invented sport. You know, sport is a modern invention that, and uh, especially the way it's described and presented and packaged and sold. And today it's sold using the modern things of Twitter conflict and controversy and debate and arguing and, 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 and that type of thing. So all of that is new. The real thing, martial arts is an old art form. And there's just people, when you, if, if you guys are talking about the art of Derek Lewis, you know, in the last minute of that last fight, people <laughs> yeah. might think you're crazy, but they're crazy. Yeah. They're crazy. They're, an, they're, they're an only 25 year aberration from the actual fact of what this thing is that you're talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting too if you think about the modern, the modern sort of packaging. Um, of even just the the context of art or music. I mean, these things were originally cultural and sort of tribal and very natural uh, and ultimately kind of necessary. And then they evolve into this uh, sort of state of necessary commerce that becomes sort of just another layer of things that we have to look through to sort of appreciate what it is. And I think that that's part of the challenge is that when people see... You know, like, you know, like how they ran that last promo for the McGregor uh, Namagamadoff fight, you know, where it was like, okay, we got yeah. the, we got the bus, we got all these things, the, tr- the Dolly incident or whatever, you know, like they can't not do it. Right. Because they're the promoter. But it makes it just that yeah. much harder for people to understand that there's something deeply artful and meaningful going on underneath and behind all of that. And even still to the point of just understanding the, the cultural differences and understanding why Dagestan is different than Ireland, right? And all the gateways to that totally. knowledge. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, can, yep. I can appreciate that very much. Um, for, for sure. And, that's, and that stuff's either relevant or it isn't. If, if they chose, like Habib chose in the early stages to say, I will, it, if the things he says are meaningless... You ignore drunks yelling in the square, et cetera. I expected this. But in the end, that wasn't true. He was emotionally affected, but it worked out in a positive way for him. But all of that, he could choose to have it, and it's difficult to do when there is a crazy man yelling at you and provoking you and finding ways. But we have the ability to choose for that to be meaningless, and there are fighters capable of doing that. At his best, McGregor, at his best moments, he's made all of that heat and controversy meaningless as he's calmly expressed martial art then at other times like in this case he could not do that and he took a shit kicking uh at, you know through parts of the fight um and that's true of any number of examples of the, like it, it, it can have meaning but it doesn't have to so let's take a second let's establish let's agree upon something joe rogan's quite brilliant right like we, we can agree on that like and not just as a martial arts expert but as somebody who in, our, in front of our very eyes has discussed Politics, sport, you know, uh, um, uh, religion and science and all of these things in front of us from a curious standpoint sitting across the desk. He's a brilliant man. He's a brilliant modern philosophical thinker. And Joe, I have the occasional good fortune to have a short conversation with Joe here and there. Uh, I was texting with him the other day. And we were chatting briefly about Demetrius Johnson going to one before it happened, but we weren't talking about it publicly, but we were aware of it. Like a lot of people were. And, and in very short, in very short text, that brilliant man got across to me that he recognizes that we think that this is what's necessary to sell this in the context of the United States of America and other areas where we believe this is the only way to cut through the noise is to have people insulting each other and buses and dollies. But that feels true, but that isn't true. That is not true. The moment, if everybody is fighting to be crazier, to be lower, to be, you know, in a race to the bottom of stupidity, which is what we're doing. We're all doing it. We're all doing it. When that's the case, Doing the opposite is incredibly powerful. Right now, uh, a truth is very powerful. You see it everywhere. You see it when you see, you know, whether Dr. Jordan Peterson or whether it's Joe Rogan or whether it's any of these people who are cutting through and people are hearing them. What are they doing? Are they all trying to talk crazy shit? No, they're talking truth and truth is stressing their truth and, uh, and it's stressing people out because the truth in a world where everybody's full of shit. <laughs> the truth is incredibly powerful. So in a world where everybody is trying to talk shit on each other, is trying to make, in a world of code, uh, Colby Covington's, <laughs> right. the opposite will be very, very, very powerful. But most people don't realize that. And Shatri Sidiatong at one championship, he realizes that, man. Yeah. It's also the world is a very fragmented place. In Asia, him getting Demetrius Johnson, I look on... You know, social media and people are like, that guy can't sell a fight. And it's like, in the context of you people, but in the context of people appreciating honor, integrity, respect, humility, martial skills, greatness, hard work, mm-hmm. they think he's a fucking genius. 
because he's a fucking genius, mm-hmm. right? So it's all contextual too. It's all very, very, very contextual. And and our our job, if we're going to like either survive or thrive in the world, is to understand that what we think to be fact is not fact, but not in a moon landing kind of way. Uh-huh. Just in a, you know, just in a everything is changing. The world is changing constantly, and if you understand that, you can find your way in it. Right. I think it's uh, it's interesting that you bring up uh, uh, the Asian martial arts scene because one of the things that uh, really caught my ear recently uh, on one of your YouTube videos was, uh, I think it was one of your YouTube videos, but you mentioned that... Um, uh, when you see, well, first you mentioned your your experience uh, at uh, commentating on kung fu, and then you talked about seeing, yeah. uh, you know, watching Tony Ferguson fight, uh, and you said that um, when you see Tony Ferguson fighting, you see long fist kung fu fighting. And for me, one of the things I've always enjoyed best about your your content and and about my own perspective on on mixed martial arts is I want to. I'm still like so excited about that dialogue about you know what works best and 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 you know you know is the is the you know as as we, as we've seen the styles develop like through like George St. Pierre through McGregor and now on to where we are nowadays you know when you see somebody like uh like Tony Ferguson like explain what you mean when you say that you see kung fu in what he's doing and which is which some people might say you know the kung fu doesn't have a place in MMA but you're saying this guy who's on the edge just shows a lot of it um yeah, I heard you right up to explain uh, what you, when you see Kung Fu. Yeah, uh, just for, you were just popping in and out, nothing heavy, just I lost uh, a sentence or two there. But, well, for me, so I had John Kavanaugh as a guest at my one-man show. I do my storytelling and then I do an interview. So it's a one-man show followed by an intermission, followed by a long-form interview with a genius. I've had Faraz, I've had, I've had Coach Kavanaugh. And, and Kavanaugh was talking about you know, traditional martial arts versus modern martial arts versus traditional martial arts. And he was one of the ones who started me on this contextual understanding of something 30 years old is super new. In fact, something 100 years old is super new when you look in the context of people studying something for thousands and thousands of years. And so let's, let's, let's explore this another way. In... When would George St. Pierre have been at his absolute peak before leaving? Like a couple of fights before he left. What's that now? 2012? Something like that? I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to gauge. Yeah, like a couple of fights before Hendrix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So basically everybody wanted to be George St. Pierre. And why did they want to be George St. Pierre? It was because they were like, George St. Pierre has found the best way to fight MMA. That, that wasn't true. It wasn't true at all. But what it was, was in that brief moment, based on what everyone knew and didn't know, based on what everybody had studied and not studied, based on the behavior that people had, the way to beat people who were at a certain level of understanding of blending all of the moments together, George was the way to do it. And he was. But that was such a temporary thing. And we, the martial arts world, we saw that as this is how you fight MMA. You jab into this range, you use low kicks, you don't use spinning kicks, they don't work. You don't use front <laughs> kicks, they don't work. You wrestling always this way. Then it, you know, and we started creating these, these doctrines. These do- and the very foundation of what MMA is, is realizing that doctrines are not ever true. Or, I'm sorry, doctrines are briefly true. And then they become untrue once we all understand what each other is doing. And so if everybody looks like George St. Pierre, everybody thinks you have to train exactly like George St. Pierre. And the problem with that is you can't beat George St. Pierre trying to become George St. Pierre. So the way to beat George St. Pierre or anybody else is beating them outside of the realm of what they do well. Now, George's approach was get better at jujitsu than the jujitsu guys, get better at wrestling than the wrestling guys, get better at kickboxing than kickboxers, get in better shape and then beat them off. And that was the 2012 version of the greatest of the great of that moment. Right. But that's not how you beat anybody. The way you beat, so I'll go back even further. I'm sorry, this is just how I <laughs> ra- rationalize things out, out loud. This is what I, how I think. So I'll go back even fur- further. When Conor McGregor was about to fight Habib, I was like, 
You can't tell me we're just going back and we're having a conversation about striker versus grappler again, and we're going to do it again and again, because that's not the root of what fighting is. Like, it's not, it's never been what fighting is. It's been short-term problem solving of the moment. That's not reality. There's no such thing as a grappler or a striker if you are a free fighter. Now, how you train and what you're good at, that is how you train and what you're good at. But to truly, aside from you, the individual, fighting itself is not broken up like that. Fighting is just fighting. So when I looked at that, I went back to Mark Coleman versus, uh, what's his name? UFC 10 uh, kickboxer, Mo, uh, Marie Smith. So I look at Mark Coleman versus Murray Smith, the first time we ever put that together. Now, if you, if you just glance back at history, what you see is Murray Smith beat Mark Coleman in 20 minutes. And people will say, well, how did he do it? It's like, well, he made Mark Coleman tire, get tired. How did he do that? Well, Mark Coleman was able to take him down, but he, his wrestling, his quote wrestling or his quote jujitsu was good enough to nullify Mark Coleman. Then when Mark Coleman, and he was in better shape, when Mark Coleman got tired, he finished him. So you go back and watch it. All of that is bullshit. <laughs> all of that is bullshit. What actually happened was on his back, Mark Coleman or uh, Maurice Smith didn't beat the, this incredible wrestler, Mark Coleman, by hanging with him wrestling. What he did, when you go look at it, it's fucking incredible, is he went and on his back, sometimes in guard and sometimes mounted, he framed like a Muay Thai fighter. He framed his forearms, his elbows, and he framed the inside. And although he was laying on his back, what he did was outstruck Mark Coleman, right? So if you and I are face to face, and I've been training in Muay Thai, that's what, I, that's what my coach called it. That is the doctrines under which I've been training, which a separate argument is there's no such thing as Muay Thai, but that's for another day. Because uh, there's no such thing as boxing or karate. They're all just constructs, right? right. But, but, but if you and I are standing face-to-face, and we're going to fight, and I understand how to control the inside of your, of your biceps, the inside of your shoulders, your neck, your head, and control that inside and prevent you from hitting me, and I can hit you, I call that Muay Thai because I trained that. I'm, I'm Murray Smith. While on my back, it's exactly the same game. I'm laying on my back, but it's the same fucking game. I am using my Muay Thai training to defeat a wrestler. The wrestler is using his training to take me down. But once he takes me down, he can't do fuck all because he doesn't know how to strike. So Maurice Smith outstruck Mark Coleman on his back and used his Muay Thai skills to defeat the wrestler by making the wrestler accomplish nothing other than take him down, not hurt him, and actually staying super calm and I did this as a, uh, as a seminar at a gym and I, and I took the 20 minute fight and I paused it and I zoomed on things and it's fucking incredible. When you watch, he's calm because even though he's on his back, he's in control. He knows every aspect of this position and he's outstriking Mark Coleman using inside fighting, which he identified as Muay Thai. And he did it calmly as Mark Coleman struggles. And when you try to out grapple, like Muay Thai grappling or whatever you want to call it, when you try to be, you're the outside fighter, I'm fighting you. I know nothing about fighting, but you're, you understand how to control the inside of my, gra- my striking. I'm going to use a lot of effort. So even though I'm on top and I'm Mark Coleman, I'm trying to struggle against something you're good at. You were better than me at it. You beat me. Ultimately, what happened is striking beat wrestling, according to that construct. But we will say, well, well, um, Maurice Smith's wrestling was good enough to nullify Mark Coleman. Bullshit. Maurice Smith got taken down the, the goal of the wrestler, but then outstruck him, outfought him, and outmanaged his energy using the skills that he had. That's mm-hmm. how you beat him. The way that you beat a wrestler, and, this, and we believed this for a long time, that we would throw strikes, wade into range, and then we'd be grappling. And we had to sprawl, and we had to defend the takedown. And all of a sudden, Holly Holm and Wonderboy and even Conor McGregor came along, and they're like, fuck wrestling. You know how you beat a wrestler? Not by takedown defense. It's by let, not letting him make the first uh, win, which is grabbing. I'll move my fucking feet. And Wonderboy beat, Frank, beat uh, Johnny Hendricks because he moved his fucking feet. Yeah. And so you, you, these guys all tried 
to figure out how to nullify wrestling. The way to nullify wrestling is kick the man in the head and don't let him grab you. Then they figured out how to outstrike people. The way to beat somebody striking is to grab a hold of him. It's all by categorizing those things, we made it be a certain thing. We had certain goals. I must stop to take them. If that's my goal, what about my other goals? What about ending up on top? What about hurting you? What about making you tired? What about learning? Instead, I give myself a single goal, defend the takedown. That's not how you fight. It's never been how to fight. So the long and the short of it is, all of those things shape into something we call an MMA fighter. And MMA was supposed to defeat what we called traditional martial arts. The reason it was supposed to defeat it is because the doctrines of your martial art taught you you must do this and you never do that. Uh-huh. And MMA found the answers. Well, the problem is MMA became a martial art. So <laughs> I, I know I took a long time to get here. No, that's good. But what I'm, is it became a martial art. And the way you beat that martial art is by using things not in that martial art which is what Tony Ferguson does, which looks a lot like Chinese martial arts. Why? Because most of these motherfuckers, especially (laughs) in America, said Chinese martial arts don't work. So they've ignored them fully. And when you ignore them fully, somebody else will use them, you'll be unfamiliar, and they'll beat you. And Tony Ferguson's doing that every fight. It's totally true. It's I find it interesting. I think, and I think your your example of how, how, you know, how striking can beat the wrestler, especially from the ground. I mean, I think that's another thing like that we could see with uh, Ferguson versus Khabib, for instance. And I think, you know, the whole idea of hand fighting and all that stuff to me, there's so much, so many tools in that Kung Fu bag that could uh, completely revolutionize that part of the sport. You might've heard me say this before, but I've, cause I have said it a lot, uh, but I'm still stunned by this every day. So Tony trains this again. He's one example. There are others, but uh-huh. Wing Chun, is exactly what you're doing, what I'm doing when I'm in your guard striking you. Uh-huh. So Wing Chun, our, our bodies are parallel. Our, so Wing Chun martial arts, upper body martial arts, our uh-huh. shoulders are parallel, our hips are parallel, and I'm striking and defending. I'm, I'm, you're striking at me or trying to do stuff with your arm. I'm opening up your arms to get a line to your chin, your chest, your body. So it is a game of stopping you to land my strikes uh-huh. in a squared up situation. When I'm in your guard, uh, doing what people call ground and pound, it's fucking Wing Chun. <laughs> you know, it's fucking Wing Chun. Like, of course it is. Yeah. But at the same time, at the same time, there is no such thing as Wing Chun. <laughs> because that's just, that's just something a bunch of people made up. Right. So we recognize it as something that people have trained or trained for hundreds of years or thousands of years. We respect oh, that they trained that. We recognize it in that and go, well, training with these guys may give us the skills to be able to use this, these techniques, but we also understand that their doctrines are incredibly limiting. It's still just something people made, and, and they made their martial arts based on their needs. Somebody was oppressing a people, and based on who those oppressors were, we built a martial art. Taekwondo has all these flying kicks because you have to kick guys off their horses while they were wearing armor. That's why... That's why Taekwondo has jumping flying kicks because the oppressors were armored and on horseback, right? So it's cool. If we ever want to use a flying kick, going to a Taekwondo school may be cool, maybe a cool way to do it, but it's still just a created system by a bunch of people for a particular purpose. Yes. And hopefully um, we're pretty far away from uh, horseback being uh, legal um, <laughs> or part of the competition. Um, <laughs> But I do appreciate. Well, I hope that I hope that stays that way. I think that. But who knows? Maybe hey, that would be cool. You know what? But Demetrius being able to knee a grounded opponent, like what? A, what a great uh, plus for him. And it's incredible. So you change any single variable, and you change everything. So if I can knee the head of a ground, grounded opponent, or kick the head of a grounded opponent, so just think. I'm just going to throw in one thing. So you're in my guard. You've got your knee, I have one leg knee and one leg foot on the ground. I can kick you in the head. Fuck, that changes the guard completely. It sure does. (laughs) Sure does. And that's just one position. If I'm on all four four points and you're there throwing punches, well, shit, you are one second away from standing and kicking. Well, that changes four points for me. Every position, every attack, every defense changes with that one rule change. And I'll tell you who the best guy in the world to handle that is fucking Matt Hume. Yeah. Matt Hume, you know, he is, 
I, I've got a, a good chance to chat with him a good few times, and I'm going to be doing some more work for one championship. I'm not sure exactly the capacity yet, but we're working on it. I got another call with them Monday. And uh, the conversations I've had with Matt, sometimes online, sometimes in person, have blown my mind, and only in short phrases even, you know. Like, and he was one of the first guys maybe five or six years ago when I asked him about, you know, when you look and you see that people are playing this particular stance, you look and against the fence, they're playing this particular place. They're putting their knee in this spot. They're, they're, you know, they're reacting this way to guard. Do you look at that and go, oh, they're doing that and find an answer? And he paused and then he kind of like was finding a way to politely say it and then he ran out of ways. So he just said, no, no, I'm never doing that. He said, if I'm doing that, I'm behind them. Right. He said, I'm trying, all I'm trying to do is find the perfection an expression of the perfection in training, the perfection in thinking, the perfection in, in free fighting, in fighting without, with only the barriers that there are. So I can't fish hook you, okay? Well, that'll change this. And I can't kick you in the groin, okay? That'll change this. And we only fight for five minutes, okay? And within those structures, he's just looking for perfection. And you change the structure for a guy like him or Greg Jackson or like the particular nerdier thinkers. And I mean that in the biggest complimentary way possible mm -hmm. for the nerdier thinkers. That's just going to excite the shit out of them mm -hmm. to be able to reinvent or reapproach right. some of their things. Now he's probably, and, and Matt, I did a, a breakdown on Matt about, I don't know, maybe 2013 when I was at fight network and it was him riding this leg ride. And the, the, the opponent didn't know what the fuck Matt was doing. And he beat the guy up and nobody had really played. It was like half guard, top half guard, but on your back hip. Very common position now. Mm -hmm. but didn't kind of, and it was a common ex a, a position for freestyle wrestling and, and stuff in America. And, and I saw Matt. So I did that breakdown. He sent me a thing saying, thank you so much. It was, he was honored. Back then, people didn't do a lot of that kind of thing. Um, and then I saw him somewhere. And, uh, and I said, yeah, you know, why did you... Why'd you approach it that way? And he so casually was like, well, you know, I looked at the kind of training he had and I realized he'd probably never wrestled in this mm -hmm. way. And if he'd never wrestled in this way, he'd be unfamiliar with that position. So I just really trained it for like, you know, a month or two before I went there. And then the, that was my plan. And I rode that spot and I beat him up and that was it. And he said it so matter of factly, because that's how it was to him. Uh -huh. And so to, to get Demetrius in a different context with some different rules and different structure, he'll love that. And Demetrius will love it. And uh, if I'm doing some analysis for one and it sounds like I'm going to be, uh, then I'm going to love it too. And it's going to be great. And it's going to be the greatest thing to ever happen to Demetrius Johnson and to martial arts, I swear. Well, I think, you know, one thing I think is really interesting is, is you know, I mean, with, with you know, I, I really like the sort of the values that one proclaims and the sort of way they put the martial arts first before the fighting in a way, um, at least in the way they promote yep. it and all that kind of thing, which I really appreciate, especially given, you know, a lot of the circus show that the UFC has become recently. But I was thinking about the other day and I was thinking, well, what if we lived in some utopia, right, where, where you know, all the robots were benevolent and they just did everything for us. And yep. we had all the time in the world to do anything we chose to do. I still think people would get around to fighting and wanting to fight and learning how to fight better. Like it's not, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that's part of us just like painting is. Big time. Like, like, so I've taken notice for whatever reason, as I've been kind of looking at different things that people do and I'm curious about them and, and you know, so why on earth would anybody free dive as deep as humanly possible <laughs> uh, for six, eight, 10, 12 minutes? Why would anyone free climb a mountain right. for 11 hours straight, straight up? For the same reasons people fight, like they need to know what they're capable of. Mm -hmm. And for them, climbing, they're just fucking who they are. They're, you know, maybe it's part of their DNA has ancestry that, lived in high up in mountains and it was just a part of, you know, the genetic code of who succeeded and it was passed down and others were fucking fighters. And I have no, no doubt. I know exactly what I am, uh, which I'm, it's a very fortunate thing to have. Uh, very, very fortunate. I feel very lucky to be able to say that. Um, if we, once upon a time, we're a bunch of primates. We all know that. That's, <laughs> that's the truth. Some of those primates were the biggest or the strongest 
or just driven to do it. And they would represent us either if we were warring or if we were fighting for resources or we were fighting for land or whatever, we would have fighters that would fight. Um, some, and later, if it was a little more peaceful and a little more settled, fighters would fight just really to reproduce, to get the you know, most attractive females or whatever. The ones that got older, they would later, they survived, they got injured, they got older, maybe they're 26, 27 years old because people didn't live very long or primates didn't live very long. They would become the teachers. They would teach somebody. And every time those people fought, there was one weird fucking primate <laughs> sitting at the side, obsessively studying it. <laughs> he, maybe he did it a little bit. Maybe he was obsessed with it. And then that guy would go and figure out what was happening. And then everybody would sit around the fire and eat. And that guy would tell the stories of what happened and why they happened. And his storytelling ability of seeing it, being moved by it, it having deep meaning to him, and then finding a way to share that with other people. I'm that fucking goofy primate. <laughs> that's what I am. Like, that's exactly what I am. Now, you know, we're a little smarter. We're, we've developed a little more. We have a little more self-awareness. But I'm just that fucking goofy primate. I'm just really, for whatever reason, to me, this is the most meaningful art form in the world. Everything has meaning if you, if you find it. You don't have to create it. It's there. Well, the more I study it, I see meaning of life. I see meaning of accomplishment, history, um, philosophy, how to live, growth, uh, love, fear, all of these things. It's all there. I see it. And the more I look at it, the more I see it. And the more I see it, the more I understand it in different ways. And I really think it's so important and so deeply meaningful and moving and important for humanity that I'm obsessed with figuring out ways that I can explain it to people. I can explain it to people so that some of them will see it like you guys, and it'll move you to, to spend a great deal of your time, you know, studying it as well. And other people will just see a minute thing and tell their friends, wow, you wouldn't believe this. This thing happened. Uh, but I really think it means something. And I really, and I feel really happy that I know that about myself and I've figured out how to, spend my time doing that thing which is what i'm meant to do yeah you certainly are and that's uh we're grateful for it so much even though you absolutely are one of the weirdest primates um that's ever been um but uh but one last thing i know you got to cut out here pretty soon but um i, I suppose we'd be remiss if we didn't um i just want to give you my my quick question which is uh with respect to Derek lewis cormier fight coming up i have this weird feeling about it and I'm not saying Cormier's sleeping on anybody, uh, but I just think the circumstances are very interesting around this fight. And I think if there's ever a chance for just a one, you know, quote unquote, one trick pony to kind of make something magical happen, I feel like this is the chance. Uh, I don't want that for Cormier, I don't think, but I want the best man to win. What do you think about that fight? Now, so I'm sorry I lost you a little bit there <laughs> as I was talking. I got, so what I did get, first and then you you can pick it up if, if we're uh, connected back is that you've got a you've got a feeling that you've got a feeling that this is a possibility that this is real that this man can do that am i am i right yeah and i think it's just an interesting thing considering that you know he's lewis is looked at as, as such a sort of singular weapon sort of figure but i think that mentally he's got this kind of uh it's not it's a deceptively laissez-faire kind of uh lax kind of attitude but i think that he's i think he's doubling down on some things in the background that are making it really interesting considering that cormier is just coming off a fight not fully healed and all that i'm just curious what your thoughts were yeah yeah so i'm with you in a lot of these areas so first of all feelings are either nothing or something. Right? <laughs> now, we, I, we, we, now we can agree on this, right? Like they are either nothing, com random firings of our interpretation of the world around us, uh -huh. or there's something, but we don't understand what they are. Both of those things I see as being entirely possible, right? <laughs> that this, that a feeling is some, some intuition, an intuition, although we don't understand it, we know it to be real. We know that intuition is based on a number of bits of knowledge, bits of things that we've seen, patterns that we've detected, combined with, with experience and, and, and so forth. So that just the feeling aspect of it, what you're experiencing, that may be something. It may be. If he does it, that will prove nothing because it still could have been random. It could have been random. Uh, 
Yeah, hold on one second. I'm just taking a picture with somebody. Of course, man. No, no, <laughs> no problem. No problem. Um, I'm chatting about fighting, of course, on, on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no problem. Let's do it. There's no sweat, brother. Yeah, yeah. I watched all your one minute. Uh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. What's your name? Connor. What's the podcast you're on right now? Uh, we're on the Art Fight Podcast. So cool. check it out. Google it. It's really nice to meet you, man. Yeah. Thank you for stopping. Um, so, thanks, yeah, for, that was thanks nice. for the plug. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. He'll check it out, I'm sure. And then he'll be like, that was me. I was, I was the guy who stopped him and then said sorry in a very Canadian way. Um, but let's say Derek Lewis knocks him out. That will prove absolutely nothing about your feeling, right? Now, because two things, two very clear possibilities, plus others we're not thinking of. One is your feeling was correct and it means something. We just don't understand it. The other is your feeling was completely pointless and meaningless. And by coincidence, he also won, right? Yeah. We know both of those things to be, to be clearly possible. But at the same time, I think there could be something there. The fact that we don't understand it in no means means it isn't something. So I think that's really cool. Uh, and the, the second part is, you know, it's gonna, you know what, Derek Lewis beating Daniel Cormier and any fight that any win that could happen had to start with actually, even as I say it, that's not entirely true, but often starts with is the belief you can do it. Right. Yeah. It has to start with that. And to somebody who, you know, doesn't consider things on, on, you know, multiple levels or, or just takes things at face value. They would hear me say that and they go, well, fucking everybody believes they can do it. But I know that to not be true a thousand times over. I've talked to many fighters where truthfully they say they think they can do it, but they know they cannot do it. And everybody who lost, not everybody, but some of the guys who lost to Anderson Silva before Chris Weidman defeated him really didn't think they could do it. They said they thought they could do it. When they took the fight, they, you know, told themselves they thought they could do it, but they really didn't believe it. So it has to start there. But when it does start there, and it's somehow deeper, your true belief, and even go further, knowledge, true or, true or untrue at the time you know it to be true, will give you commitment. And if, if the guy who just stopped me on the street to say hi, if he was committed to knocking out Dar uh, Daniel Cormier, that would be meaningless. He doesn't have the physical tools to do it, no matter how much he, he, he 100% is certain he can do it. Mm -hmm. But Derek Lewis does. Derek Lewis, even though he probably has lost some weight because he's been, you know, training differently, which to me is probably not how anyone would recommend to do it. Because in three weeks, you could be a little bit better cardiovascularly, but not enough to be, for it to be meaningful. Um, but uh, even if he lost a bit of weight, he still, he cuts from almost 300 pounds. It's part of his game. It's part of what makes him special. When he weighs in at 265, he's done heavy weight cutting. So let's say he's 280 and Dan's a pudgy 240. A 280-pound man, when he lands a fucking punch, he knocks people unconscious. <laughs> to land that punch, you must fully know you're going to land it. And that is powerful. And he, why, why, how and why would some of us believe that we could do it? What would help us to believe we could do it? Well, if we'd ever done it before, we have, we have proof in our own human personal experience that when we know we're going to do it and we're committed to it, we knock people out. He fucking did it three weeks ago. He knocked that guy out three weeks ago at whatever, dropped him four minutes and 40 seconds of the third round. So he knows it can be done. Um, Cody Garbrandt, when he beat um, Dominic Cruz, he knew he was going to do it, and he was flowing with that true belief mm -hmm. and knowledge. Sure was, and I yeah, know, again, fight. Some, people, some people would say, well, everybody's got that, but they really don't. They really don't. And if you really are being self-aware and if you're really studying yourself you, you, and you start to get to know yourself and how different you are, you can just reference your own experience about how sometimes you believe a certain thing and other times you're afraid and other times you're confident and then other times that in floor hockey, that, that plastic puck ends up on your plastic stick and it's already in the top corner and you know it. And mm. that has to be there. Or else, of course, Daniel Cormier kicks the shit out of him. Of course he does. And he probably still does. But is it possible that he does it? Of course it's fucking possible. And Cormier, on some level, would turn down because, you know, he's not 100%. This was on three weeks' notice. Daniel Cormier, in his life, would have turned down 
19 out of 20 heavyweights that he was offered on three weeks notice in New York, even though he's probably getting a million dollars, he would turn it down because it's too risky. He's not in shape. He's, he's not, he's pudgy. He, but now he's like, well, I'm a heavyweight. Well, I'm in way better shape than this guy. Uh, he's, he's probably on in some way, maybe Vulcan is a, the quote, and I'm using air quotes because I don't believe this, but the easiest opponent I've had. Right. So now you got a guy goes in that way. When I, when I saw him getting ready to fight Anthony Johnson the second time, I was 10 feet from him in the back. And the fucking crazy intensity that guy had, it was crazy. It was moving. It was like I was scared. because And he's making loud sounds and he's throwing himself around. And he, why did he feel that way? Because he was fucking terrified because Anthony Johnson's fucking dangerous. And that very thing that he did it, uh, was key to him being capable of performing that way. Well, he's not going to feel that way with Derek Lewis. Mm-hmm. He's not going to have that. He's going to be a different Daniel Cormier. And if he's a different Daniel Cormier, and Derek Lewis is the best Derek Lewis, fully committed, everything in him, of course it's possible. It's highly unlikely, but it's totally possible. Mm-hmm. But uh, And it's going to be cool, man. We don't get to see fights like this very often. Some weird matchup of, you know, <laughs> the, the best in the world against probably the number... 20 guy who's probably ranked at number five because, you know, he captures the imagination of journalists who vote, you know, like we don't get to see that too often. That's really fucking cool. Like I, I, I can't wait to see it. I'm, I'm going down on Friday. I'm going to go to glory Friday night and then I'm going to go to UFC 230 Saturday night. It's on, man. I, well, I, I know you got to cut out, um, but uh, yeah. I just want to uh, thank you like very especially and very pointedly and very sincerely um, for being such a just a naturally uh, enthusiastic and positive and insightful uh, person in any trade, right? Like just it's just a pleasure to talk to you and uh, and we very much appreciate you taking the time. Well, you're very welcome, guys, and thank you for the kind words. And, and it does, it really means a lot to me, the idea that my, something I'm super excited about and dedicated my life to, uh, every now and again, lights some other people to, to give it a little, little run in a certain direction, too. It really means a lot to me, man. And, uh, and I know sometimes I'm hard to get a hold of, and, and I'm all over the fucking place right now, but let's try to do this again in like five or six weeks. We'd love to do that, man. And also, too, uh, you know, uh, the UFC comes to the UFC comes to Nashville every now and again. And so if you ever find yourself in our neck of the woods, we're definitely going to connect with you and uh, drink some tequila. Actually, I, I was going to say this when you guys said Nashville. I'm, uh, I'm about two or three emails away from confirming a bunch of uh, sort of being embedded with Michael Chandler to do oh, uh, to study him through his training camp for DAZN, and he'll be doing a lot of his training in uh, in Florida. But he lives in Nashville a lot right. of the time, so I think there's a chance I'll be in Nashville with him. And if there is, we will uh, we will drink copious amounts of caffeinated beverages <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, all right, and, and shout slogans at each other. <laughs> all right, hey, well, you know, thanks a lot. Thanks for uh, taking us on your walk today, and. Uh, and uh, and we'll continue on that with you. Really appreciate it, Robin. Take care. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care, guys. Enjoy the hostilities, my friends. All right, Joe. So that was Robin Black. Um, I love that you can just say one word to him. Yeah. And he will have thirty insights that all correlate based on just one one word or one utterance. He's so. Um, uh, interesting and, and observant and uh, I appreciate I mean imagine if he was, like you know you do a lot of writing right you're you're an art critic and all of those things like imagine if if you had like the the, the Robin Black um, art critic Adderall yeah I think you kind of do actually I have it a little bit I but I, I, I have to rein it in you know what I mean I mean for the most part it's uh, yeah I mean for the most part that's what I dig about him is I dig the fact that he that he is as enthusiastic and as energetic as he is and as curious as he is. I think that the curiosity part is the the part that we all need to, you know, sort of, ah, you got to just keep that pump primed as you get older and as things become less novel or whatever, you know, you have to keep seeing things in a new light. But I've always been somebody with a ton of energy and a ton of like, if I like something, I want to like the fuck out of it. And so I appreciate that about him. And, uh, and, uh, I, you know, I was listening to his most recent, uh, 
uh, enjoy the hostilities uh, long form podcast today. And it's like, you know, we were talking about this before we did the phone call with Robin, but it's like half the time he starts talking about something. And then if you're not familiar with how this works, the next thing you know, he's talking about how we're wrong in the way we're talking about it. Yeah. And it's like yeah. it just gets into all this minutia and process and many times just goes in circles before it comes back around to kind of get to a point or something. But I, I mean, all of that exploration and all that just enthusiasm and that thinking process and that deep yeah, desire to really truly understand it. Yeah, it totally resonates. He's like with the me. Uh, he's like the John Coltrane of uh, fight analysts. <laughs> yeah, you really. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're gonna. It's like okay, our promo. you're taking yeah. uh, you're taking a simple tried and true melody like my favorite thing. Yeah, you know you're absolutely. And then right. you're questioning every assumption about sort of how it was yeah. predicated, who wrote it, yeah, why did they write it, right. why do these notes follow in this sequence, yeah. and how why can't this be more dissonant or why can't yeah. this be more like why does my favorite things why can't it be a right. twenty three minute psychedelic journey that we yeah. do like at a jazz festival yeah. or and, whatever. And I think the beautiful lesson of it is, is the idea. And I think, you know, good writing about, about the arts or good podcasting about the arts and stuff can help us with this. But the, the thing is, is it's like, you know, this, this beautiful, simple, traditional, well, not traditional, but this beautiful, simple, familiar pop melody, right? It actually is this incredible psychedelic thing. If you have the ears to hear it that way, right? you know, and, and uh, somebody like Robin looks at martial arts and, and he sees, this kaleidoscopic journey, you know, yeah. and I do too. It's you all know? very, so, it's, it's a very intense, very resolute web of interrelated, mm-hmm. um, sort of, um, rules or non, like it's, it's very relational in its construct totally. that it, and it's infinitely yeah. changed. I really liked what he was saying when he said, uh, you know, about sort of once, once something is recognized, was it, he was talking about Kavanaugh talking about this, I right. think, where it's basically like some, once a technique or something is acknowledged for being that technique, then it's sure. sort of like over for that because right. it's been acknowledged. So you got, you, you're, it's uh-huh. sort of requisite or I think when he was talking about Hume, he was saying like, if oh, you're yeah, like, Hume, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you're watching for like, what's the thing now you're too late because that thing's already dead. Because as soon as I know what to do about the single leg, yeah, everybody yeah. knows. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think that, um, in music or any other sort of creative pursuits, I, I've always find myself, uh, you see people that are playing to the status quo and, and only doing proven formulaic things to have sort of some success or, you know, whatever. Mm. But when you can find those people that are just really pushing into something new, but it's not uh, unfounded or unappreciative of the history of, of yeah. uh, whatever, you know, foundational elements or art history or music history or yeah, it's not cultural being history. It in any way. Yeah. So I, I just keep trying to sort of loop, loop that back around for, for people that are listening because if there's any example of uh like why we're doing this uh, it's you just heard it you mm-hmm. know like that kind of enthusiasm is just so um you know it's absolutely unbridled and and magnetic and it forces you to uh you know follow along a new way of thinking or at least a, a more concentrated way of thinking that then you in, invariably are going to imply or apply to other aspects sure. of your life so i think that's what's um, most illustri- illustrative of the sort of full circle kind of why we're doing this, why we keep talking to all these different people and how, how we kind of bring it together. So yeah, that was, that was a really uh, good hang. And, uh, and it sounds like we'll do it again uh, in four to six weeks or something. And we'll, uh, we'll know about more about his future with, with one and what that's going to be. And we'll yeah. also know um, what happened in the Cormier Lewis fight. Uh-huh. And we'd like it. I mean, if, if Michael Chandler is listening to this podcast and we would love to have him on the podcast as well. And maybe yeah. now that we've had Robin here, we can make a connection with Michael yeah. a little bit better. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, but anyway, so any other parting words? Um, uh, do you want to plug anything? Uh, do you got any project going on you want to talk about? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I got a bunch of shit I'm going to just blather about for a minute. Yeah, I mean, I just have like, <laughs> I, I got a photo into that uh, Frist collection that's going to be exhibited oh, yeah, in March. Uh, so that'll happen next year. So that's going to well, go know, in, There's just things going on. What does it go? It goes into like the public library archive or something, right? Is that right? So anybody that submitted something for mm-hmm. that exhibit will, will automatically be in the archives. Yeah, And then they cool. chose 50... Photo, uh, photo, photographers and photographs that they will then print and frame and then they're uh-huh. going to have an opening in a, in a run for exhibition run for a few months and you'll be in the exhibition as well right okay yeah no, yeah. no, no shock there but yeah well, good to know so that's really cool and then um, you know otherwise 
uh, I've got some some I've been digging through the archives and releasing uh, music that should be available to the world soon because uh, me and my partner in crime Andy Alexander we had an outfit oh, called you and Andy. Yeah, we did a lot of stuff in, I didn't know in New York City your, from your like two thousand. Yeah, from like two thousand seven to two thousand eleven, we're about to release uh, sort of an archive of just lost works that we did within this four year period. That was a very specific, t- you know, place and time. Living in Queens, riding our bikes everywhere, living a weird, you know, sort of off hours life. And yeah, uh, you he's know, an be, off being, hours kind of guy. Yeah, we, were, <laughs> we we definitely did a, an existential. Uh, a whole crew of us were up there at that time, and uh, it was it's interesting to, to pull apart that's the soundtrack of what we were all doing at that time uh-huh. so anyway it'll be really sentimental to me and then probably just sound like a bunch of weird noise to everybody else and that's fine but uh <laughs> but it's but it's important so uh so anyway look out for that um yeah that sounds good so hit us with all your things real quick i'm doing a um thing where i've basically i'm for technical reasons i'm re-releasing my first record but realizing that my first record is also celebrating its 20th anniversary i thought okay well wait a second why don't i add some bonus tracks yeah we'll release the remastered version of the album and uh and i've, I've been putting it out there i've got a couple of people scheduled to do some reviews on it and stuff so there'll be a little bit of buzz i'm it's called uh, my first record was called plain jane and this is going to be called plain jane 20 i, and I just yeah. i literally just got all the artwork done on that so that's coming out like in in, by the middle of november it should be in all the stores again and everything that's awesome back in amazon and all that stuff all over again interesting sort of correlated theme there right like going back and and recontextualizing or releasing things that haven't been uh sort of seen or heard that's right and it's just it's a little bit of a nicer version like like it sounds a little bit updated and it's got some extra tracks and and it just seems like if if i had to go to the trouble of putting this thing back out into all the digital markets marketplace that I might as well get a little attention for it if I can. Um, uh, And I also uh, just got an email today that my first batch of postcards from my Pikes project is shipping. It's on the way to my house. So I'm going to end up having postcard uh, prints, postcard prints. I'll have 10 uh, packs of 10. So it'll be 10 uh, of my street photographs that I've meticulously edited over the course of the last few weeks. But I went ahead and just printed the first image 50 of the first image so good so that i could just make sure that the i like the finish and that the the template on the back was what i needed to be and yeah. all that stuff so I, I went ahead and printed those but if 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 i get those probably early next week and they look great then you know really before christmas i'll have my postcards all ready to go and love I'll that start i having like those available it's nice to have things that are approachable and yeah haveable by more yeah. people as opposed to just That's, these uh you know yeah highfalutin uh sort of uh art prints that you usually right. make right that are you know they cost whatever you know sixty seventy thousand dollars <laughs> it's hard it's hard my, my, my prints don't sell for that much but, not but this a, is definitely the more accessible way for somebody to get it and i also sort of am having fun with like postcard culture in a place like Nashville yeah. like when you live in a city that's such a internationally known destination yeah. city postcards are a whole part of the yeah. visual identity of a place that that most places don't even have you and, know and that kind of mirrors so, what your project is about exactly too. it's a yeah, really so, a natural extension yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a brilliant uh, I, I love I'm it. trying to keep it brilliant it's, over here yeah it's kind of pedi- <laughs> it's pedestrian yet brilliant yeah yeah but yeah. it takes that's a lot it that, takes a lot to be simple I'm, that, exactly yeah, yeah. it uh to live outside the law, you must be honest, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that's about it for this week. All right. And then otherwise, just go to anchor.fm forward slash art fight podcast and hit uh, support this podcast and give us 99 cents a month. We just need 1 million people so that we can reach our $1 million a month goal so that we can buy another microphone. That's right. If we have a million dollars a month, we will be able to afford another microphone. We'll fly Robin Black here and make him sit down and <laughs> pay him to sit here and just rant. <laughs> if we get a million dollars a month, we will take six months of that, and then we will uh, convince Robin Black to allow us to shave his head for, for like three point five million. This has all been approved by Robin Black. <laughs> <laughs> no, but again, uh, you know, thanks again to, to Robin Black and to everybody's listening. We appreciate it, and we are out.
Okay guys, I love the Art Fight podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash Art Fight Podcast. Click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast. And once you get there, you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level. You're going to pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and, and help us out. Again, anchor.fm forward slash Art Fight Podcast. Click on support this podcast. All right. Thanks, everyone.